All hands on deck. It's the RMS Unraveling Technology. Setting out from port for the 102nd time. Welcome to the Unraveling Technology Podcast. It's me, Joe Tonks, David Johnson. David, ask me why I pretended that the podcast was a ship just now. Joe, why did you pretend that the podcast was a ship just now? Well, last night, not to go on about it too much, I had the privilege of going to the Lyceum to see Titanic the musical. It's a musical now. It's a musical in two halves. First half being one hour, 20 minutes. Second half being 50 minutes. Okay. I thought it was very nice that they put that up because I do tend to, regardless of how good something is at the theatre, with the lack of leg room and the heat, I'm always getting a little bit antsy by the second half. There was a joke on an old, like, Newgrounds animation about Titanic being on, like, two discs and two opposing people finding a disc one and the other person finding disc two and them arguing about, oh, this is the bit, the boring part with all the romance and no action. <laughs> oh, this is the the part with all the action that has none of the establishing characters. <laughs> yeah, and by their did powers they, combined, the perfect film. Did they split it in a similar way? It was, well, firstly, it's older than I thought. Yeah. So it's uh, it predates the movie by about a year. Um, and that isn't based on the film. Okay. So you got some of the characters, because actually quite a lot of the characters in the film were based on real, real characters. People. Yeah, or real people. Um, and secondly, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I, I kind of, because in my head, bringing, bringing this, the spectacle of the biggest object in the world at the time sinking, that, that's going to translate pretty well to a theatrical or to a, a musical experience. Um, distinct lack of water. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was hoping they might, you know, re-kit the Lyceum with a splash zone or something, but <laughs> it wasn't to be. No water. It was all done with lighting. Perfectly safe in the front three rows. Yeah, absolutely fine. Uh, and it was, I know I have no right to be disappointed. I should have gone in with tempered expectations. You know, what, what are they going to do? Are they just going to flood it with water and, you know, just water cascading down onto the orchestra <laughs> and trying to play through it. <laughs> Uh, no, it was uh, the, probably the best thing to happen was, um, there's a bit at the end where the ship, like the spoilers for if anyone's going to see Titanic, the musical at the Lyceum, but there's a, a bit where they've got the, so the set is mostly, it's a static set of the, of the bow of the ship and they've got these four ropes and towards the end, a bunch of people pull the ropes and I guess the, the bow must be on a bit of a hinge. So it kind of uh, tilts upwards. Okay. Simulating a sinking. Oh. That, that was kind of their big, big blowout set piece, which I appreciate is it's not, not massive, but yeah, it was good. It was good. Well worth a watch. Okay. I think of it as a bit of a gimmick at the end of the show, they should have had it. So the women and children have to leave the theater first, <laughs> but the logistics would be a bit of a nightmare. It's a really strange one though. Yeah. It's weird how this kind of, a tragic event from a hundred years ago has now been transcribed onto film, like you know, music, theater, video games. Yeah. I suppose it's kind of the old, you know, if they, if they hadn't have gone off and called it Titanic and called it unsinkable. But I think we were, we might've been discussing this previously because when were there three boats that were made, there was Titanic gigantic. And I think there was another one as well. There was another one. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. So maybe they all had names and they were all called unsinkable. 
It's just that that one happened to sing. Oceana or something. Maybe. I can't remember. Not quite as arrogant a name, really. It's weird how the Titanic's sort of got this lingering, like there's been a lot of disasters that have happened that have killed more people, you know, that have had kind of big impacts on things. But the Titanic just seems to have taken off in just a really odd way. Yeah, I think time, you know, distance, puts a bit of distance between it. It's all very, you know, oh, it was the older days. I think there's something to that. Excuse me. Also, you know, there's just so much overlooked and it could have been avoided and who knows. But anyway, yeah, it was a good musical. Okay. Well, it was all right. The musical <laughs> aspect. Okay. I'm not massively into my musicals, but I do think it's a bit of a cop out when they just say the line with a bit of a tone. That's not music. No. That's just kind of bridging between the music by trying, don't drop the thread, no one talk normally. So, yeah. Mm, I, I couldn't say I was an expert on musicals either. No. But still, the fact that it went 20 years without me knowing it existed. Uh, well done. Well done, Titanic the Musical. But now at the Lyceum. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know for how much longer. But they've got all the merch and everything. We've got one of the brochure guide things. We've always got to get the guides when we go to go to the theatre. Okay. Yeah, so you I know what you're looking at. Yeah, I don't know what, where we put them all. We must have a big box somewhere just full of them. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Right, okay, let's talk about some news anyway. Um, the first thing that I've got for our unraveling technology today is the X, um, Microsoft have announced the Xbox Adaptive Controller. So after three year, years of work, uh, Microsoft are introducing this controller, which is designed for accessibility. So I think... To my knowledge, at least, you might know different. There is no kind of benchmark or standardized controller these days for disabled players. No, from what I gather, there's kind of lots of smallish companies that set up and build their own things. And then I think players kind of jury rig their own kits about as well. There's no kind of go out there and buy the this is the one. and those controls tend to be quite expensive as well if you get a third party to build you something. I did see a news report, I don't know, a year ago maybe, mm-hmm. where some somebody wrote in to Sony and who um, had problems with a regular controller and basically described um, the issues that they were having and then someone from Sony basically built them in their spare time over like three months or something, a controller that worked for them. Oh, wow. Nice. But that was a one-off, I think. They didn't make that commercially viable. Yeah, I think the problem is you have so many different uh, people with so many different uh, disabilities to try and account for that it will be kind of hard to mass-produce something because you're always going to hit up against this, uh, I suppose... As as much of a charitable act as you wanted to make it, or it, it, you just couldn't justify the costs for the returns, really. And I think games have always kind of played with the idea of uh, trying to make things accessible, so remapping buttons and colorblind features. That's something that you see a lot yeah, these days. Yeah, you you see it more these days. I think that's still an ongoing process. Um, mm. 
in that there's still plenty of games that don't follow that or have you know tiny on-screen text because they expect everyone to be running on a big massive tv so if you're partially sighted you can't read any of it you know what i'm playing uh, god of war which is quite a, a new game at the moment and that it's getting to the point where i'm kind of having to squint and lean forward and they have addressed that in a patch recently yeah i think you saw this when there was that move from standard def tv to high def yes and i wonder if we're seeing that again now as we go from hd to 4k I remember borrowing your PlayStation 3 while we still had a standard definition TV at home and really having difficulty reading the on-screen text in Uncharted. Yeah, it's uh, it's not very accommodating, this uh, (laughs) the the whole entertainment technology business. I think people are slowly, slowly catching on to things like, I guess it's fairly well known now that you don't, you know, I don't know, building a puzzle into your game that relies on you telling the difference between something that's red and something that's green. Yeah. But there's just such a wide range of, even just sort of like, you know, visual things, for mm. instance. Yeah. So many different types of colour blindness. Or um, motion sickness as well, which yeah. I think is a more fundamental problem with video games and especially VR. Because I know you, because you... you there's certain games that you've played and you've told me make you feel motion sick, whereas, and I know my dad had the same issue with a bunch of games, but... Yeah, I reckon for me, I mean, I've I've yet to play a VR game for any length of time without feeling sick, and I've not tried any of the later kind of newer headsets, so maybe some of those issues will have gone away by the time that I actually get around to doing that. But mm. my thing is in... In first-person shooter games or just any kind of first-person game, oftentimes they will try and add to the immersion by um, rocking the camera about while you're moving. Mm. So when you walk forward, the camera will kind of sway side to side to, you know, kind of reflect your main character's gait, I guess. It's like your real-world swagger. Yeah. And to a lesser extent as well, they will games have started to do kind of like these first person sort of little cutscene bits or when you interact with an object it'll take over the camera a bit and kind of pull it around and stuff as as you mm. as your main character's head moves around while they're i don't know wrenching open the door or you know hitting some object with their knife or whatever yeah um but yeah when they when they consistently sort of rock the camera about that really seems to trigger my motion sickness and i will always go in and turn that option off if i have the option but a lot of games don't give you the option so yeah i wonder why that is as well because that kind of thing it would take work to put it in there so sure surely for the sake of a checkbox you might as well have the option to take it out yeah i mean there's i guess some element of when they're designing and building the game they're trying to like the whole the whole purpose of that feature is to make the game more cinematic and they're trying to make a more controlled cinematic experience that feels exciting and so on so they're probably like oh we don't want people to turn this off we put effort into it Mm. um but yeah if you don't realize it's causing problems for people then i guess you don't think to build that in or it's more complicated to kind of every feature that you add that is optional I guess, gives you, you know, you've doubled the number of test cases that you've got to go through for everything. 
Yeah, that's true. It could just be a budget thing at the end of the day. And well, a lot of games are trying to hit the mass market. You're trying to cater for everybody, which ends up excluding, you know, lots yeah. of people who are on the fringes of things. Which is where Microsoft have spe- uh, stepped in with their adaptive controller, which is um, it's a funny looking thing. Uh, so to look at it, it looks like a very small DJ set in a way. It does. It's got these two massive black buttons that look a bit like discs. Yeah, and it's kind of a, a sort of keyboard-esque. It's like a big uh, rectang- rectangle. It's not something you'd hold in your hands, really. It's to be rested on a surface, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, the the main thing about it is that it's modular. So in, yeah. in addition to your little, uh, you, you, the big buttons and your standard Xbox button, there's also a load of jacks on the back of it loads of them about 30 maybe 40 yeah so i don't less i think they don't have the kind of standard a b x y stuff you've just got the d-pad and then these two massive buttons and then the sort of the xbox guide button is it still called yeah uh and kind of select and menu and stuff um and then yeah the uh the whole back of the thing so as you say it's a bit sort of kind of vaguely keyboardy in that it's a sort of flat but slightly sloped white box two massive buttons on the top of it which are slightly domed um which you can map to any option you want basically and then along the back you've got a little 3.5 millimeter uh audio jack type hole mm-hmm. um for every single button on a standard controller with the idea that apparently the audio jack kind of cable is your standard cable that you would use when you're building accessible controllers to mm. kind of hook together. So you might need a whole range of things, like you might have pedals or large buttons or something that you're hitting with your feet. You, you I've know, seen things like proximity sensors, so you yeah. just wave your hand close to something to to make it work. Yeah, some people like blow or sip or uh kind of suck into straws to do movement um so you can kind of have all of these things that you might already own all these accessibility controls and like a whole range of them and this gives you kind of a central place to plug all of that into to build your own custom essentially controller that you can you know use however you want to Mm. Um, it's quite simple technology as well the 3.5 mil stuff it's just i think it's just communicating voltage so it's on off yeah which means uh i i wonder how that works for things like analog controllers because your typical controller will have you'll have two sticks and that they they're analog rather than digital so the more tilt you put on them the more the more of an x or a y input that it puts in on a spectrum so i wonder how that translates over a 3.5 mil jack yeah i don't know um i'm kind of looking at the image and i'm trying to see whether there's it's a very nice looking piece of kit it is i mean one of the uh one of the things that they said in the design process was that they didn't want it to feel othering Mm. so they're very much trying to hit the same sort of design aesthetics as any standard peripheral they'll make so the whole point is not to like single people out and say oh you got to use this kind of this device it doesn't really match up with any of the other stuff it is it looks like something that has been you know 
manufactured by Xbox by Microsoft for the Xbox. Yeah, it looks swish. And I think it has the ability as well for uh I think you can plug in a standard controller or somehow get a standard controller to inter- interface with it so you can have kind of a joint play yeah, mechanic, which they- I've heard kind of like uh, uh compared to like training pedals in a car. So when you're when, when the, the driving instructor has so that they can also drive or brake more importantly. Yeah, there's a thing called co-pilot, I think, yeah, which, basi- which is basically where you can map your controls across more than one device. Mm. Um, so you can have a, for example, if you wanted to play with somebody else, you could give them a regular Xbox three, uh, sorry, a regular Xbox One controller, yeah, uh, and they could take care of certain functions. Like, for example, maybe moving is difficult for you, so you could give them access to the joysticks, and they could do the moving and the camera controls. But then you can handle shooting, so you can map, say, the big buttons on the adaptive controller to firing and reloading, um, or if you were just playing on your own. For example, if you had a problem with one of your hands, but the other hand is fine, you can have all of the controls on, say, the left side of the Xbox controller work exactly as they would normally, but all of the controls on the right-hand side you've got mapped to other devices, maybe foot pedals or you know whatever else you've got, and you can kind of set up a system all hooking into this adaptive uh, controller that works for you interesting because this is going to be uh, useful for people who aren't able to play uh, in the sort of conventional manner but i wonder what scope there is i mean you see people uh, playing uh, you know really rock hard video games using dance mats i wonder yeah. what kind of scope there is here for people to break games even further using all these weird uh, sensory inputs i do yeah that'll be something to see and, and i think you can use it because it's just the standard xbox um a driver so i think you can use it with pc mm-hmm. i'm sure there's an adapter or something that will let you use it with playstation i bet you can yeah so even if no one else responds to this or it comes up with their own solutions i think this sounds like a pretty good universal solution to a lot of a lot of accessibility problems with games yeah or even other software it might oh, yeah, sure it might have the kind of effect that connect did in that it kind of lives on beyond its initial sort of pitch so the connect camera was only ever really built for you know playing games on your xbox 360 but actually most of the interesting stuff that came out of it was people hacking it about and doing stuff on the pc with it and you can imagine that people will because as you say this just just gets seen as an xbox controller which is fully supported in windows and can be hooked into software with very relative ease Mm. um so yeah just adding this as controllers to control your whatever program you want to would be fairly easy yeah so we might see that uh see that at some point in the future uh one thing that um i think is worth mentioning is the price i think it's more expensive than a regular control I, th- I think i saw somewhere around three times the price of a regular controller right i don't know whether that's final pricing this thing's not out yet yeah um just but- quite a lot for something that has the potential but not all of the inputs of a regular controller yeah but, um, but having suppose- having said that um 
if you were to buy kind of more accessible controllers and things, those tend to be manufactured by small companies and I guess have limited runs as I imagine this will have a significantly more limited run than a yeah. standard controller that Microsoft make. Uh, and they tend to be about, you know, 10 times the price of a regular controller. So yes, it's more expensive. You can kind of see why, I guess. And it's also not as bad as uh, some of your other options. I um, there's, a, there's a website that sells kind of standardized 3.5 mil accessories, buttons, inputs, things like that. And I was just going through it and I was actually kind of shocked by the price of it. Yeah. I mean, just something like a kind of a large button, with a 3.5 mil jack coming out of it. And it was something like $30. As, wow. You know, if you had a lot of inputs for a lot of different buttons, then that's, that's quickly going to get quite pricey. Now, that might just be that particular site. I don't imagine there's a lot of places that produce accessibility buttons. And it might be that you need to put more work into things like durability or uh, sort of haptic feedback. You know, if you need, uh, say, if you didn't have the nerves to detect when you've actually pressed the button, you needed some kind of uh, physical response from it. Like an audio or 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 audible click or something like that. Yeah. So there won't, there won't be a massive market out there, I wouldn't have thought, but there'll be specific markets. So, yeah, maybe that's just going to always be a factor. Yeah, it does seem that, I guess, because you, you're talking about, you know, people who need help with accessibility, you're kind of lumping everybody into one group there. But when you're talking about people who have accessibility problems, you are covering a massive range yeah, of... You are all kinds of things that you might struggle doing. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it seems to be a lot of kind of specialisms and a lot of hobbyists kind of building something uh, that fits their needs and then sharing that and, you know, potentially building other versions for other people. Yeah. So, yeah, it's quite, quite small and, I guess, diverse, the market of, Sure. things that you actually need to build i suppose good on microsoft for kind of taking taking that bull by the horns yeah uh, they did i've not actually seen it but i had it recommended to me a video from i'm not sure if it was a ted talk or something but it was a, a blind guy talking about how he's able to use visual studio okay uh, with accessibility options so you know coding in visual studio without the need for a monitor or anything does that just kind of like read out stuff to him or i haven't watched it yet but okay. um, i I would guess so. I wouldn't, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought any program was intuitive, intuitive enough that you could code and debug it without some other kind of feedback. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so, you'd have to have to be pretty good at, I don't know if he, if he's typing, then your touch typing would have to be pretty, pretty up there. <laughs> I make a lot of coding mistakes when I'm just, yeah. you know, just <laughs> typing stuff out. I will hit the wrong key. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll see if I can find a link and we'll we'll, we'll put that up. Just got another G, GDPR email, by the way. Should have oh, had, should have a bell or something, or a gong. So every time I get one, because I think we're coming up to the deadline now, aren't yeah. we? So awful lot of emails flying all over the place. There was discussion in the office about we were wondering what the sort of overall flow of emails was going to be like over the last. Because you can imagine that there'd be this kind of steady ramp up as we approach GDR yeah. date. 
is everything going to suddenly drop off once we get past the 25th? Well, yeah, because anyone who's sending emails after the 25th, they're kind of not doing it right. <laughs> I've got two two emails from the same company here about 40 minutes apart, both of them with the exact same title about GDPR. Doubly sure that you're reading them. All trying to be kind of, you know, trying to get me to read them as well. Because I guess a lot of mailing lists, people are going to be unsubscribed from mailing lists after this. So I got one from Sage earlier, as in Sage accounts so with the title time to say goodbye question mark <laughs> unless you opt to continue to receive marketing communications for us we'll no longer be able to contact you so there you go well wow. some some desperate pictures here anyway let's uh, let's move on to our, our next story i've got some elon musk stuff so this is an article from uh electrek.co okay it's about a uh, Elon Musk and his new ventures to build a big underground uh, metro tunnel network. So the initial title of it, well, the title of the article was uh, Elon Musk's boring company announces partnership with LA Metro for its tunnel network. Now, when I first read that title, being a little bit out of the loop, out of the hyperloop, you're like, oh. um, I thought maybe the title was having a go at him, calling his company boring. Nope, um, that's what it's actually called. Yeah. But you'd have to forgive me for thinking that, David, because I'm seeing quite a lot of anti-Elon sentiment these days. I don't know about you. Yeah, I I feel like I'm slight, also slightly out of the loop mm. uh, in that stuff seems to have really turned around. Like last time I kind of checked, I thought everybody liked Elon Musk and thought that he was, you know, okay. And then suddenly I'm seeing a lot of hate on Twitter and yeah, a lot I'm of people... I'm not really sure where that came from. No, people saying, oh, he's sending cars into space. Oh, he's building flamethrowers. Uh, oh, why can't... What's he doing? Uh, I, I don't know if it's just people being contrary. Like, it's no longer cool to be on the Elon Musk bandwagon or Ev something. Everybody likes him now, so he's not cool anymore. Yeah, so they've got to turn him... I, like, I saw a comic the other day. I think it was on Twitter, um, which was uh, saying something to the effect of, oh, look, here's Elon Musk. Uh, designing his his posh pneumatic pods for his hyperloop for rich people. Um, what about uh, the public transport systems and things like that? And I think I, Elon Musk's not under any obligation to fix national infrastructure, really, is it's he? It's not his job. No, yeah. I mean I can see the argument with with great power comes great responsibility. But even so, you know he's he's kind of already to an extent kind of reformed or at least transformed banking, automotive aerospace ai but it's not elon musk's job to fix the planet although a lot of people seem to think it is maybe that's it maybe people do think it's his job to fix the planet and that's yeah, why maybe people feel he's not doing a very good job i feel you could have a go at shell or exxon mobil or something if you want to have a go at people who are like promising renewables but they don't have faces they're corporations yeah maybe he's just got a hateable face nevertheless so Hyperloop um, technology, as I understand it, is that thing what you see in films and that, usually Terry Gilliam films, <laughs> where uh, you put, pop a little thing into a tube and it goes boom and goes somewhere else. That's what I thought uh, initially, not having ever read into it. Yeah. It's not quite that. Right. So the, kind of, the thing that you're thinking of is the vacuum tube system. Yeah. Like that, um, I think... I, I guess it's pretty much gone now, but seem to be the sort of big businesses in the 80s 
before everybody had, you know, computer networks that were all linked together, mm. you would have the, I don't know, I guess the accounts department or somewhere that you needed to send your information to. And you'd have these massive vacuum tubes that were situated uh, in ev- on every floor in your huge sprawling office building. Sure. And you could just, you put in the, the bits of paper that you needed into a tube um, uh, into a little capsule, stick it in the tube, close the tube up and off it goes. Mm. F- flies through the building, appears at the accounts department or at some sorting room or something. Having said all of this, I have a feeling that it might still be in use in hospitals because uh, I think I had some a blood test done and I think they put stuff in a vacuum tube to transport it. Wow. So maybe it isn't quite so dead. Maybe not. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing where even though it's, say, kind of redundant at this point, it still sounds like if someone was to say tomorrow, hey, we've come up with a system where you can send things around a building through these these pressurized tubes. That sounds futuristic to me. Yeah. Did you... I have a vague memory of um, there's like the Virgin Me- Media, whatever music store in town. Oh, Virgin Mega Store. Maybe uh, I think it was it them. used to be outside Orchard Square. Yes, yeah. uh, I think it was them or the whoever owned the shop before them. They used to have vacuum tube systems oh, around. Right. Like I, I, I think I saw them work once. Mm. And it was kind of, it was for putting money in. Right. Um, so you put money in, then it would kind of get sent off to like a central place. Um, I think I saw, maybe saw them work once. And then I was kind of aware that these tube systems were all over <laughs> the few times that I went in the shop after that, but um, they were not using them. And I always thought that was a shame because the whole vacuum tube idea seems really cool to me. They could bring it back because... It was Virgin Megastore. Then it became something else for however Zavi. long. Zavi. Oh, yeah, it was Zavi. Now it's Virgin Money. It is. And the same building, maybe it's all still there. Maybe they can send checks yeah. back around or something. Well, it'll be, it'll be digital now, I would have thought. Yeah. Who knows? But anyway, so Anywho, the, the yeah. principle with that is you've got a little capsule that is just like a sealed capsule, essentially, and you suck the air out of the tube um making a vacuum which means that the capsule will fly through the tube uh basically be sucked through the tube like yeah uh, sucking something up with a vacuum cleaner i guess um this is slightly different in that it does use a vacuum tube but the point is not to move um an object with the vacuum the vacuum is more the idea that well when you when you have transport that's running fast the problems that you run into are friction. Um, so you've got friction on the rails or on you know the wheels or whatever it is that's kind of running along the road or the track or whatever mm-hmm. uh, on your transport. Yeah. Uh, and you also have air resistance. So which is obviously why, you know, sports cars are designed to, you know, cut through the air. Yeah. And you kind of family a uh, car doesn't really apply so much yeah sure <laughs> work to it so the vacuum the idea with the the hyperloop is that it takes place in a in a near vacuum tube but that's not to suck the kind of vehicle along it's just so that there's next to no air in the tube which means there's next to no air resistance which means it can 
go up to very high speeds without the air pushing back against it. Uh, and then the other kind of the bit that they're overcoming, the friction with the wheels, they, I think in the original design, they were talking about using air pressure, like air joints. So they're kind mm. of like it was gliding on a cloud of air, kind of like an air hockey table works. Right, yeah. And in the current version they've got, they've switched that out with maglev, like passive maglev. Okay, right. So the uh, you rode on the bullet train in Japan, mm-hmm. kind of the same way that that works. Right. Using okay. high-powered magnets to make the vehicle float above the rails so it's not actually touching the rails which means there's no friction there so it can just go for it yeah i think they said it could you can be looking at speeds of maybe up to 750 miles an hour it's supposed to be if you like believe the pitch and if they can actually achieve it um the idea is that it would be i can't remember is it like la to what the two cities they quoted Great question. Uh, should have read this better. Should have read um, it at all. They're talking about like a 50-minute journey, something that would take half a day in a car mm. and in theory would be much more efficient so they can reach very high speeds. Um, obviously, you can reach high speeds in something like a plane, but mm. for, in order for a plane to travel at those kind of speeds, um, they have to get up really high. So the whole whole reason that planes fly at you know thirty thousand feet or whatever is because the air uh, up there is much thinner, which means there's less air resistance, which means they can go faster. All oh, right. Whereas okay. this, by kind of artificially removing the air in their tubes, means that they can you know get the same benefits of low air pressure and get the same speed gains out of it without having to you know have the however long you know 40 minute climb up there and back down again right um, it was from uh, i think it's just across la so well they're talking they're talking about building um there's there's been lots of kind of pitches the the one that we're discussing now is kind of like a an la subterranean tunnel yes uh, i think they're talking about uh, <clears throat> yeah it doesn't necessarily specify a hyperloop either in this but uh, i think the implication would be that he'd draw on previous ventures or looking at hyperloop technology and use boring the boring company to somehow yeah they this. so they kind of this whole idea of the technology and the design and stuff has been deliberately outsourced and there's a lot of companies that are kind of competing either competing to design vehicles for use in the hyperloop system that elon musk's building or competing to build their own hyperloop systems i think is it hyperloop one is the elon musk Mm. kind of backed venture but Yeah. yeah there's there's a lot of companies kind of jostling about in the same space um but yeah they they were talking in the initial pictures of uh some like massive long several hundred mile um construction of these pipes across the californian desert yeah. i think which was the the journey they were talking of taking like you know 50 minutes to complete okay and it takes you yeah. know an hour plus in a plane that'd be pretty good yeah if it works company. Yeah, but yeah, this this particular news story is about them trying to build. I guess the first part. Are, are they doing testing? I guess. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's uh, for the boring technology as well. 
Yeah. So what Musk is quite often does is that he he does that thing where he kind of retools an industry with a lot of baggage. So, you know, you have a lot of technology these days that's built on the back of previous tech. So it's why cars are always kind of iterative because they all build on tech that other companies need to, you know, or quite often, for instance, Ford need to, or I'm just thinking back to instances in the book that I've read because I read that biography, but Mm. uh, I think it's something like General Motors maybe have to outsource to other companies to get bits done before they can do their bit. Right. Of course, if you think about modern computing as well, you'll get a bit from here, a bit from there, a bit from everywhere. And that means that you get higher costs, which then gets passed on to the consumer. So I think they're looking at, I think they'd have to sort of cut the cost of boring by 10 times before it became feasible to do something like that. Okay. So, but, but if they can do it, great. And they've proven that they can do it in, uh, with whether it's with aerospace stuff or cars. So I don't see why not. Doesn't strike me as a very competitive market, building <laughs> massive underground boring machines. I don't know. I imagine that you would be able to use this technology for other things like construction of sewers or maintenance tunnels or who robot knows what. wars. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, uh, the eventual plan, I think, for this particular um, tunnel that they're building and so on is that they want to create a hyperloop between downtown LA and the LA airport, mm. which I don't know how long that currently takes, but they're basically trying to speed up that whole process. And they're kind of, there's a lot of hyperbole flying around. Oh and yeah, there always like, is. It's saying things like, oh yeah, and it, tickets for this system could cost as little as a dollar. Although, you know, we'd have to see about all the different people that would be involved maybe it cost something different um yeah la talk of uh, using the technology somehow with spacex as well so maybe it'd be a hyperloop to the los angeles spaceport and then from there to To mars Mars. (laughs) in an hour for a dollar drive your tesla to the nearest hyperloop station oh yeah board the hyperloop we'll fire it into space free flamethrower with every <laughs> I think that was the first that was when the boring company came to first was publicly recognized was when they developed those flamethrowers um which I think have been sent out now I don't know <laughs> I feel like I'd have seen more videos of people playing with their flamethrowers if they got them unboxing the Elon Musk flamethrower yeah exactly uh yeah so th- I don't know, remains to be seen. We'll see what happens. Apparently he had the idea for the boring company while he was sat in traffic one day. Yeah, I saw a tweet. I wonder um, how much that was an improv tweet and more just, uh, uh, you know, him unveiling months worth of work. Yeah. Because like, I'm, you're sat, I'm sat in traffic. I, I'm going to do something about this maybe. <laughs> yeah, because that's very much his style. He's a bit of a showman. Not the greatest showman, of course, but <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll see what see what comes of that. A lot of people saying as well that uh, LA has a bit of a rail system, but one of the things I've heard people argue is that a lot of subterranean or uh, sort of transport systemage maybe is not a good idea in a place that frequently is exposed to things like earthquakes. Yes. I don't know how much there is to that. I mean, I've recently been to Japan and they've got quite a bit of metro underground rail structure and they're quite often get hit with earthquakes and 
I would have thought, to be honest, it's probably safer to be underground than overground. But uh, I suppose it depends. Yeah. If you're I'd... on a fault line, it might not be the place you want to be if everything just kind of shifts <laughs> laterally. But Fly out of a tunnel into some <laughs> chasm or yeah. find that the other side of the tunnel shifted two foot to the right. Like yeah. something out of 2012. But yeah, um, I don't know. That might just again be the detractors. That might just be the haters trying to come up with an argument for why Elon shouldn't do whatever Elon's going to do next. Yeah, I've seen an awful lot of... I've sat down and watched most of a uh, a video talking about why the Hyperloop was a complete flight of fantasy and wouldn't work at all, mm. which had some seemingly reasonable ar- arguments based on the physics of the thing. Uh, this one was more talking about the massive, you know, several hundred mile long um, pipeline that they're going to, they want to put out in the desert mm. in the sort of with no air inside it and sat there in what will range between, you know, freezing cold winter nights and oh, yeah. baking hot midsummer, you know, the doing various calculations on, okay, well, if you've got 300 miles of pipeline and it's being made of steel that is, you know, two centimeters thick or whatever, then this is the amount of expansion you're going to get. It's about three football fields worth. (laughs) So normally if you're going to build a bridge, you'd put in sort of, you know, expansion points. I guess you've seen them on bridges where you kind of got like meshes, I guess, like tooth, tooth lined bits Mm. of metal so that the bridge can expand and contract without, you know, pushing into itself it's got kind of built-in gaps in it yeah bit of room um, to breathe yeah but you can't do that if you've got a uh, vacuum inside you can't have a gap in the pipeline so you'd have to come up with some kind of vacuum seals that could also expand and contract or you would have to have all of your expansion be done right at the end of the pipeline which would mean your stations could move by three football fields so why, why don't you just put in some of that accordion stuff they put in the middle of bendy buses you know uh, just stick that every few meters because atmospheric pressure is about 10 tons oh, atmospheric pressure does all this mean if it's operating in a vacuum that it would be silent no probably no. not um i mean I, there's obviously there's going to be air inside the car mm. if there wasn't air inside the car then you're going to have problems, which is another sort of argument against this whole thing is the safety of it all. I was wondering when you first started talking about it, would there be some kind of buffer between... I suppose you wouldn't have more than one one on a track, would you? Well, I think the idea is you would. If it was cyclical, if it was a, a loop, which is in the name, then presumably you could have more than one. But I wondered if maybe the buffer or the lack of pressure meant that in much the same way that apparently a plummeting lift would kind of decelerate as it got lower because of build up an air cushion yeah wonder if there'd be something like that um i mean i think you do have more than one going and when they say a loop all of the kind of visualizations that i've seen are kind of two pipes on top of each other so you've got kind of one flowing in one direction one flowing in the other direction right um so it's not like a big circle like less a loop more just two parallel lines yeah, from what I've seen, I've I've not dug into it too hard, but okay, yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, there's the there's other things like if you 
if you've got it out in the open, what's to stop somebody just wandering up to it and hitting it and, you know, or shooting at it yeah. and causing a hole. And then if you've got air rushing in, that's coming in at approximately the speed of sound. That force of air hitting True. a car is not going to do good things to the car. Yeah, man. And then you kind of have less catastrophic cascade effect of the car being hit and then what happens to all the other cars behind it and so on so i don't know but i, I don't suppose, know how much of that if you've got it all underground and as they seem to be doing with this la version i guess you're offsetting a lot of that like there shouldn't be too much of a temperature change if yeah. you're burying it underground people can't you know just go and shoot a hole in it easily if it's 30 foot down you can try it's a case of doing the due diligence i suppose i mean yeah. the first time a tesla battery blew up i'm sure that they thought that doesn't look great but you know you you put in the fail safes you put in the systems and just uh hope that the 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 pros outweigh the cons you'd hope that they're doing that they were in the news recently about their new tesla having problems with the braking software yeah uh, and then Those two words shouldn't it. be in the same sentence, breaking and software. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't actually read what the problem was. I just read that uh, some review site had flagged that there was some issue right. with it and Tesla had responded and pushed out an update. Mm. But yeah, that's that's not kind of... And there's all the other sort of various talk by NASA on the SpaceX front about how the way that they are achieving their, you know, rocket propulsion and stuff. And basically the the quick summary of how that works is that they keep the rocket fuel at very, very low temperatures until just before they load it in so that they can basically compact loads and loads of rocket fuel into the same sort of area. Yeah. And then they've got way more fuel to burn and they can have more thrust. The downside of that means that you have to fuel your rocket just before you take off, Mm. which means when you're fueling your rocket, you've got potentially astronauts sat in the rocket or the people that you're trying to fly to Mars. So any problem that, you know, results during fueling, which is quite a dangerous point of the whole thing, is going to kill people if you've got people in there yeah so they they're pushing boundaries and some people would say not really paying attention to safety yeah so much i don't know yeah we'll see i guess we'll yeah, see what happens wait for the for either the first big thing to go wrong or maybe not or maybe somebody to step in and shut the whole thing down before it even gets started maybe well stay tuned on that one uh, on my last story today, I've got, uh, it was a article on Quora, was that how you pronounce it? I think so. Yeah, which is basically the thinking man's Yahoo Answers. <laughs> That's where you can go and ask questions and get them answered. And someone posed the question, what is the most sophisticated piece of software code ever written? I got quite a compelling answer from a guy called John Bird, who is... Um, Looking at his credentials, he's uh, he's been CEO of a, of a company called Gigantic Software. He's been a director at Sega, senior manager at Electronic Arts. He's got some credentials behind him. And basically his answer was Stuxnet, which I've, uh, I've, I've, I've heard of before. 
Uh, I've heard of it a couple of times, but reading this gave me a a much better insight into the kind of the complexity, espionage, and the general good luck or bad luck that kind of aligns with uh, things like computer worms and viruses happening. Have you heard of Stuxnet before? Yeah, again, similar to you, I think. I knew kind of there was this virus that people had found and it seemed to be trying to do something with uh, generators like... um, uranium generators but i didn't really know much about it mm. um and yeah this article is is an interesting read yeah it's not very technical which i think is to its uh to its credit because it's quite a hard thing to kind of explain in immense detail although i'm sure there are people out there and there's a semantic uh article somewhere that does go into great detail yeah but it's one of those things where um it, sometimes it's hard to pass how computer malware or viruses can have real world ramifications or kind of the dangers posed by things like cyber warfare. I mean, even, even I, to some extent have been, uh, been guilty of thinking, oh yeah, well it's computers in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not great in my line of work, but you do occasionally think, oh, this all sounds very blown out of proportion. But a lot of the virus stuff that you hear about tends to either be, oh, it's just somebody writing something for fun to see whether they could, or it's, you know, kind of, fairly fairly small time criminals who do things like you know encrypt all your files and then demand Mm. a ransom to unencrypt them whereas this is very much nation state kind of level seems to be yeah um so yeah uh, this is uh this is about a bit of a computer worm then so like a virus that's designed to infiltrate that was created in 2010 it was left on the usb drive well, that's how it works. First, it exists on a USB drive. And I guess someone goes around and they spread USB drives wherever. You okay. find a USB drive. You think, because you don't know any better, you plug it in to see what's on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you plug it in and it, it goes to work. So the first thing it does is you plug it in and it runs a program and it copies itself to the PC it's connected to. Uh, and when, when I said initially this this a lot of this is down to good or bad luck, when when this first came out, when it, when it came out, this virus, uh, it used three different exploits to copy itself to a computer, two of which people didn't even know about. It was kind of new. Brand or, new. Or what you call day zeros, yeah. I suppose. So un, unknown uh, exploits. And then that gets onto a computer that um, it then tries to make itself an administrator by using two more exploits. And from there, it can kind of cover its track and uh, run rampant over a computer. It digs um, itself in so deep that you basically, even if you were looking for it, you couldn't see it. Yeah. And uh, it kind of it ran amok for about a year before anyone even recognized it exists because for all intents and purposes, it was, it was malign. I mean, it, even if you think about human biology, the amount of viruses humans are infected with, the amount of bacteria on us, this probably, it's not until symptoms appear that you really care. Yeah. There's lots of lots of code running on computers executed from all over the place. So it's only when it starts to be used for nefarious means that you kind of have to lock it down. So the virus, once it gets onto the computer, once it makes itself an administrator, it tries to contact two websites on the internet. So you've got www.mypremierfootball.com and todaysfootball.com. It's a wonderful website names. And so unassuming. I mean, even though football is spelt wrong, if that's what it's meant to be, I 
It's spelled F-U-T-B-O-L. And Premier, because it says Premier in there, I thought it meant like Premier League football. For, maybe. Who knows? Maybe I'm, maybe we're missing something. I haven't quite had the courage to click those links just in case. No, it seems like not. Well, I guess they've presumably been taken over now because you, that's you kind of so. the, the first thing that people do when they identify, oh, a virus is contacting these particular web addresses is mm. they go seize control of those web addresses. Um but yeah, they were located in Malaysia and Denmark. Right. Those two sites. Okay. Well, which are not uh, not particularly... Uh, we talk about top-level domains and how some maybe have a better reputation than others. Uh, I don't feel like Malaysia or Denmark's top-level domains have any particular bad rap attached no. to them, especially not in 2010. Well, these were both .com addresses, but uh, yeah, that's where the servers were. Okay. Oh, yeah, good point. And then it goes... It contacts these sites and it goes and grabs the latest version of itself yeah. updates itself Doesn't basically update. so yeah. if there's a new version out there it'll update and then Clever. it sits there and any other usb stick that you plug into your computer it will start writing copies of itself too and it'll also try and um go out onto the network and infect any other computers it can reach on the network mm. and like one of the ways that it was um writing onto the usb sticks was they basically built a fake usb driver and normally windows will not let you run random drivers without throwing up a lot of warnings because they need to be what's called digitally signed so a driver being like a bit of code that allows your device to communicate yeah sorry yeah so if you want to use a usb uh, stick for instance you need a driver that interfaces between your windows computer and the physical hardware on the usb stick so that windows can tell the driver i want to write a file here and the driver will convert that into you know what actually needs to happen physically to write into the memory of that mm. usb and, stick and you can usually usually operating systems come with quite a lot of those these days don't they yeah. Like back in the day, Windows 98 XP was a nightmare when you rebuilt a PC because you'd have to go and hunt down the drivers yourself. But now a lot of it's automated. Yeah. And just available on on the internet on for download through Windows Update most of the time. Yeah. But yeah, so um, normally you can run just a random driver because Windows would get upset because it's not signed. But um, they managed to somehow steal or have access to um the real tech so real tech being a soft a hardware company they got a certificate and they managed to steal it and sign this driver with real tech so it's pretending to be a legitimate driver that windows trusted and just ran mm. um and they i think later also found another software another uh, certificate from j micron yeah uh, which is another it's both real tech and j micron of taiwanese companies yeah. Um, so somehow they managed to break into both of those companies and steal both of their certificates, which you're supposed to be very, very careful about guarding for exactly this reason. That certificate is kind of assurance that you can trust whatever code is signed by it. Yeah. There's a lot of a uh, lot of speculation at that point or at this point as to who would have access into these highest security level parts of this building and whether you're looking at um, espionage or whether it was blackmail something to governmental governmental level maybe 
It's a great one for conspiracy theory, this. Oh, yeah, brilliant. So it's it's in there. It's copied itself. It's replicated itself to all of the computers on your network, and it's copied itself to any USB you've plugged into it and therefore any other computer that you've plugged that USB into. Yeah. Spread all over the place. At the moment, not doing anything, noticeably. Not, not doing anything. Um, but it's on the lookout for something, uh, which is a very particular bit of control software. Mm. Um. This, I think it's a Siemens uh, like control software for basically these kind of generic, fairly generic control boxes for that get used in large automation jobs, yeah. like automating factory equipment, things like that. Big industrial machinery, things like that. Yep. Uh, and it uses another unknown bug to then copy itself into this control software mm-hmm. um, where again it is undetectable yep yeah so then you've got the industrial machinery and on top of that it's looking for specifically motors a certain type of motor attached to it and i think in this point he mentions mr bird that there's only two places where these machines are in operation i think and isn't it is it denmark Was, uh, it's denmark? finland finland, finland. And Iran. And Iran, yeah, which is uh, kind of fuels the whole, is, was this conducted at a governmental level by the US or Israeli governments because what these big motors are typically used to do is to purify... Uh, they run uranium. centrifuges a lot of the time. And one of the things that they use centrifuges, centrifuges for is purifying uranium. So now you've got this malware that's infected a controller which is attached to some big turbines which are trying to keep uranium under control. And at this point, it could do what it wants. So it could it could make the motor spin really fast and blow up. It could make the, mo- the motor turn off. But that would kind of be a little bit too obvious. I think if that happened in your uranium enrichment facility, you'd probably think, okay, something's going on here, shut it all down. But that's not what it does. So... It, uh, it it alters things that way. It goes to sleep for a while, first of all. Mm-hmm. And one thing they don't really talk about here is it would usually go to... So the article says that it would, it would wait for the time is right and then it would wake itself up. What it would typically do was it would wait until right near the end of the, of the, of the cycle of the, the uranium purification scan cycle and the reason that it did that was because when it woke itself up it would start to mess with things just a little bit so slow the fans a little make them a bit faster just mess things around just a little bit and at the same time it would mess with the gas pressure in the um what you call it the motor cycle thing the centrifuge the centrifuge sorry yeah um causing it to get uh, to condense and because it's very very gnarly gas called uf6 it would condense it into what would eventually form to be little rocks so you'd have these turbines running at irregular speeds with these little rocks inside them and eventually something's going to go wrong some of them would just die quietly others might go out in a you know rattle and explode so you're going to get these failure rates but you're not going to get it's not going to be obvious so you're not going to kind of get everything across your whole factory fails all in one go. Yeah. You're going to get just kind of an increased level of failure 
or the uranium doesn't come out quite right. It's not quite purified enough. Um, that's why it always woke up towards the end of a cycle. So if they tried to debug, if they thought, right, okay, let's run this in a controlled environment so we can figure out what's going wrong, they would have to wait ages before they'd see before anything. it would fail. So it's like waiting for a computer backup and it getting to 99% and then failing. You think, oh, that's a lot of time, but we've got to do it again. But even if they did try to debug, they had ways around that mm. as well because what the... Um, what the worm would do is it would actually sit there and record um, it's like 20, 30 seconds worth of genuine working data from when the worm wasn't messing with anything. Mm. And then when it started messing with it, instead of reporting the actual values from the centrifuge, it would substitute in the data that it had just recorded. So if you're mo- sitting there monitoring everything, it looks like it's totally fine, which you know, it reminds me of the sort of from speed where they <laughs> yeah. they record, a, you know, 30 seconds of video footage from a camera and then just play it on loop uh, mm-hmm. while they're doing stuff. Or I guess any kind of heist movie probably does that now. Yeah. So, yeah, if even if you were trying to debug it, you wouldn't be able to see anything in the actual data that you're getting out of the machine because yeah. as far as that's reporting, everything's fine. And the other side of that as well apart from kind of human operators looking to see if things are working that is also the same data that's being reported to any mechanical failure control systems so you obviously in these kind of things you need to react very quickly if something goes wrong Mm. so they often have systems that will jump in and you know shut things down if it looks like the motor's spinning too much or something like that, something's about to fail, stop it, deal with it. Um, mm. But all the data that's being reported to those systems is all totally fine, so they good. never step in. Yeah. So um, that way, potentially, you could bring down the whole like the nuclear program of a superpower. So I think in this instance, it depends who you, who you listen to, I think they were a little bit overzealous with the spec for the worm, whoever they are, and it kind of got caught in the wild before it got to its intended destination. So I think Iran got wind of this and sort of shut off their network. So in a way, the worm didn't really get to do any of what it was designed to do. I think the, yeah, they, it kind of spread out on the wilds and you've got lots of big antivirus companies who did spot it after, as you say, like a year mm. uh, of it being out there. Um who then started frantically decompiling it to try and figure out what's going on because they could see that it was, you know, you could see this worm is figure, you know, embedding itself in these computers and spreading like crazy and hiding itself very much, but also doesn't appear to be doing anything. Mm. Um, and they built kind of test environments and deliberately installed the worm into it to observe what it's doing. Um, I saw there's a TED talk on this actually that I watched um, and they described it like they were building a lab environment for a a lab rat and they were offering it a bit of cheese and the lab rat was turning around saying, no, I don't want your lab cheese. Mm. And they're offering it various different types of cheese, but it wasn't biting. So they, they then kind of from seeing, oh, there's this worm, we don't know quite what it's after, suddenly realized it's after something very specific 
this this has been written with a very very specific purpose we need to figure out what this is doing because who knows it seems to be targeting some kind of industrial equipment this the control equipment covers a huge range of things it could be you know factories it could be could power be. plants it could be all sorts of things and you know at that point they didn't know that it was specifically two types of motors it could have been you know attacking american manufacturing infrastructure or you know american power plants or stuff in europe or the uk or wherever so yeah all these kind of big very clever antivirus people got involved and tried to get to the bottom of it and kind of unpicked what it did i guess before it had too much of an effect because yeah it's it's very sneaky the way it's built is specifically designed not to you know dramatically break every centrifuge in your um uranium plant the whole point of it is that you know the failure rate of your equipment is just going to increase slowly but you won't be able to tell why mm. so you're going to have you know multiple machines failing if you're the it person on your watch but every debugging you do every kind of like reinstall of the software you know everything that you try you're not going to get rid of this worm and you're also not going to be able to see what's going on so you know you're not going to be able to spot it yeah scary stuff and actually uh it was designed this this version of the worm to destroy itself in 2012 so i think the assumption was after two years if it hasn't done its job it should scrub itself to try and uh, prevent itself being detected but there could potentially be others out there Uh, there's an article uh from i think it was the register from 2012 saying that uh Antivirus experts have called on cryptographers and other clever bots for help after admitting they are no closer to figuring out the main purpose of the newly discovered Gauss supervirus. Apparently people could still be decrypting to this day. So, spooky. Yeah. But I just thought that was an interesting article. I think there's also a film or something or a documentary called Zero Day, which I think deals with this kind of thing, which might be worth a watch. Gonna have a long list of things to watch after this. <laughs> right, we better finish soon. Uh, before we do, I've got a Kickstarter for you, and I really like this one. Okay, the promised Kickstarter. The promised Kickstarter returns. Yes, uh, it's a Kickstarter project which currently has four thousand seven hundred pounds of pledged of its uh, seven thousand four hundred. I'll let you Google this one, David. It's called "Slightly Browning Fake Plants." <laughs> And uh, it's a very, very funny Kickstarter and quite a good premise for one as well. So, you know, fake plants. Uh, We've seen fake plants around. Sometimes it's hard to tell if they're fake or not, but by and large, you can tell a fake plant. Yeah. And uh, these guys who've set up this Kickstarter suggest that maybe the problem is that the plants, the fake plants are always so perfect and maybe they just need to be taken down a level. So they're producing something, a fake plant, called the two-week vacation (laughs) taken from their kickstarter it says the two-week vacation redefines imitation 
it's top of the line both in terms of quality and lack thereof <laughs> so it's kind of like a fake plant but it's all browning and it's like, looks a, like it's a fern and <laughs> malnourished yeah, half fern. of the half of the fern is kind of turning orangey brown some of the leaves are a bit bent yeah they say the final result perfectly replicates a boston fern after two weeks of unwavering neglect <laughs> they gotta say your plant is dead don't fool yourself don't try watering it and don't you dare go out and buy another succulent face it you can't take pet care of plants no one can i actually had to have a look up the definition of succulent because i've never heard a plant referred to as a succulent before i think that's that's the origin of the word i didn't know that so you kind of uh, um, cactuses things with like thick leaves and stuff like that that's a succulent plant okay yeah. I, I've definitely been in the room while Gardener's World has been on, so I've heard that term. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, it was an absolute joy for me to learn it. But yeah, there's a good Kickstarter. $45 uh, for the privilege of, of owning one of these slightly browning fake plants. They also provide a three-week vacation version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which just in looks tragic. As someone who's waging an ongoing war with his garden... <laughs> you see the uh, the benefit of just getting something that looks a little bit similar and astroturfing everything else. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I'm going to get that sorted soon. My God. The, uh, my arms still ache from the amount of raking boss that I did the other weekend. It's, uh, yeah, garden ownership's not worth it, I tell you. Anywho, I think that's us. Um, let's leave it there. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can either email us, which is podcast at unravelingtechnology.co.uk. That's the one. That is I always one. get it confused with the Twitter handle because the Twitter handle is at unravelingtech, T-E-C-H. Uh, you can also um, read our blog, which we have, which is at unravelingtechnology, usually authored by or overseen by our very own uh, Adam Willerton, who unfortunately is not here today. That means he's missed out on the Titanic talk, but don't worry, yeah. he's not getting away with it. We'll talk his ear <laughs> off later. Uh, and you can drop us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. It all helps. But we'll probably be back same time next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.